Well, good morning everyone and uh, welcome to this open public event as, event as we have called it. And uh, those sitting in the auditorium here is a really nice variety of uh, students, guests, friends who are also guests and guests who are also friends. So that's a nice combination of things. And, uh, so if this is by chance your first time in this auditorium, a warm welcome. If it's your hundredth time, a welcome anyway. It's a great joy to have uh, Amy Oryun and uh, John Dixon with me, with us today. Uh, if you should describe yourself, Amy, in three sentences, how would you describe yourself? Um. Uh, I'll start with a woman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I am uh, an apologist and an evangelist based in Oxford. Um, I'm the director of the centre, Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Uh, I travel and speak and give talks about the Christian faith and try and answer people's questions. Um, I'm involved in um, working with young people as well, so I'm the founder of something called Reboot, which is focused on youth between 12 to 18, and I'm married and have three children, and my husband is a church planter, a missiologist, and together we lead a church that lives on a farm. Mm -hmm. That was well done for three sentences. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and then with a, with a lot of nice little small sentences, well, that's beautiful. Uh, and then I understand you come from the country of Brexit, yeah, I was actually born in Australia. Oh, okay. so, so there's a long history there. That's my guess, yeah. 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 yeah, So, so is there hope for Vietnam? Well, it all depends on Super Saturday. Parliament hasn't sat on Saturday since the Second World War, and they're going to be sitting on Saturday to decide. Which is on, tomorrow then? Yeah. yeah. On um, voting on the the, the deal. Um, and honestly, the, the parliamentary numbers are very, very close. Mm -hmm. So people do not know what is going to happen. So it's a great time of uncertainty. Um, I think Christian leaders in the country feel a mixture of, you know, everybody has their own political view, but a mixture of discouragement about that, but some feel real hope this is an opportunity because the foundations are shifting things that everybody thought were certain are absolutely up in the air and it's a real opportunity for, for the gospel. Mm -hmm. So thanks a lot for sharing that and, and I think we, we all need wisdom in, in such circumstances and a lot of wisdom also as Christian communicators, as Christian neighbours, friends, family and all that. Maybe we even need a historian's perspective, John. <laughs> Welcome to Norway from the from down under, as we say. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, although it's relative, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you would say we are at the, the downside. Yeah, that's right. So. But you're a historian, a theologian, and uh, a, a video producer or film producer, but also you're a musician as well, is that right? Ah, are you still practicing as a musician? Uh, not much, uh, but I just recorded a few things. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it just used to be sort of in between other things. In between other things. So I had to record uh, a theme song for my uh, podcast, and while I was there, I laid down a track 
from a song that I wrote some years ago. Uh, so, but I don't, it's not a big part of my life, but it used to be my life. My life was just uh, touring and singing in band. Hmm. Now do you become a historian? <laughs> well, uh, somewhat accidentally, um, in the band, because we were Christians, we were not a Christian band, but we were Christians in a band, and we would play in pubs and clubs and so on, and introduce our faith between songs. And as a result of that, we received so much mail from people, curious about Christian faith, that we, as a band, took a day off a week just to reply uh, to the various uh, mail that we got. And that, that kind of grew into the need to write a book on the topic, so we wrote a book on the, on the topic, answering people's questions. Um, but it dawned on us, and certainly me, that it would be very easy for me to spend the next 10 years just singing the same songs, giving the same talks, writing the same letters, without any foundation. And so... Uh, we disbanded in order to go and do a theological degree. So the whole band went to theological college. <laughs> and it nearly drove us nuts because we went from touring world with best friends playing 10 shows a week to learning ancient Greek and <laughs> reading Calvin. Um, and um, we would have advice on more on Luther, which would have been more not public for me. Who knows? Who knows? And uh, it was it, it was it was difficult, but uh, it was through there that I that I discovered a love of learning. And after I did my theology, I was so excited about it all that I wanted to do a, a master's in the historical background of the New Testament, and that blew into a PhD in a state university in. Uh, the origins of Christianity in the Roman world. And then it started to, to roll. Yeah, I mean, it does sound uh, like I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Uh, <laughs> when people, you know, hear a musician, the filmmaking, the academics. But for me, it is all very simple. I just want to make Christ public. Mm -hmm. And whatever I've done, it's just about that one thing, actually. And you even founded something called the Center for Public Christianity, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, Center for Public Christianity, and we started 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's a group of scholar communicators who are trying to make Christ public. Mm -hmm. I know you have visited there. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, it, it's it, uh, yeah. It, it has opened so many doors in mm -hmm. the public in uh, in Australia. Mm -hmm. So that um, the people from CPX, we call it CPX, the X being the Kai in Christianity, too much detail. With the 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 writers from CPX are being published in the mainstream press all the time. Uh, and on radio and TV and so on. And we're just trying to make a generous, sensible Christianity more public than it is. In June, uh, I actually met, you know, uh, some of us were at, at uh, the Global Workplace Forum uh, with the Lausanne Movement in Manila. And I had breakfast one day with two other people, one of them being the Archbishop of Sydney, mm -hmm. Glenn Davis. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm so grateful for John's ministry. Mm -hmm. So that was. Uh, well, we had already invited you, of course, but that was, uh, we didn't want to, to, to turn it back. Well, it is a great, it is a, yes, thank you. Um, it, it, is a, it is an amazing privilege that in a place like Sydney, which at, at one level is quite godless, uh, we have an archbishop that is a strong biblical scholar, uh, very firm in, uh, in a robust mm. theology, and he's leading 300 churches in Sydney that um, pretty much share that vision of Christian faith. It's amazing. Mm. So 
Our topic is, is Christianity rational and development in today's skeptical age? And we share some thoughts and we share some filters. Now it's time for the first one. You don't know which filters there are, so it's a surprise also for, uh, for Amy and John. And uh, the first one is, since you got quite a lot of time now, which was wonderful, you need a longer clip, uh, Amy, to balance that out. And uh, one of the things I think you have encountered a lot is the question, is the Bible sexist? So uh, let's watch that clip and uh, hear your answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. You're coming. Uh oh. Mm hmm. It was coming. Yes, used to be coming. <laughs> Just a moment. So this is from Reboot, isn't it? Yes, yeah, is, this is absolutely from Reboot. Mm -hmm. ah. Maybe you need to reboot. Let me try to see if this is... Mm -hmm. okay. There we are. There we are uh, on our way. Okay. We want it on the screen, don't we? Ah. Mm-hmm. It all worked really well. That's all it did. It did so well. Okay. So anyway, while we are waiting for that, <laughs> uh, reboot is a new initiative. Some of us heard about that yesterday, and it's an amazing. Could you just think back three weeks and walk through us? Where have you been through the last three weeks? Yeah. Maybe exactly. two and a half. In terms of reboots, yes, so at the beginning of September, a reboot happened in Kampala, so um, over a thousand young people are meeting in Watoto Church, which was... Isn't the Bible set? <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sorry for sorry. Amy dropping okay. Amy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we had 1,500 teenagers in Westminster Central Hall, just opposite Poland, um, asking their questions about faith, hearing from... John Lennox, um, a panel of medical doctors, consultants, talking about and answering questions about um, Christianity and ethics. We had um, uh, our African director um, speaking on is Christianity a white man's religion. We had um, a New York actor who is in the Luke Cage films. He's a Marvel actor as the sort of host and a supermodel, former supermodel Tracy Trinita speaking about meaninglessness of life without Christ um, and her journey from kind of fame and rock and roll modeling to, to Jesus. Then the following Saturday we were in Madrid um, and we had 900 teenagers from all over Spain and it's the largest gathering of young people outside the Catholic Church in, in the country and many, many young people finding Christ for the first time for themselves and just flooded with questions the whole day is is, is filled with Q&A. Yeah, so it's, it's been a pretty awesome few weeks of reboot and we've got Dominican Republic coming up and um, Abu Dhabi and Cairo as well. That's, yeah, I, I think, think, I think that, way, <laughs> you know, some of us have been so much to England that using American terms is not always what we feel natural, but I think that 
the American term awesome, I think is the right term <laughs> when you hear something like that. It, it's, 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 all glory, it's totally all glory to God and has surprised us. Though. I think the, the, the thing that has surprised me most is the capacity for 12 to 18 year olds to ask really deep questions and the how crucial it is that as the church we actually put into their hands really good answers to those questions because they're on the front lines in their schools and with the media and everything so. Thanks for sharing and, and for those of us that it's natural to pray for those kind of events and we've even started Let's pray for, for those events. And we've also started on the conversation, the possibility also of thinking about that, doing that in Norway together, which would be lovely. Yes. So let's see the clip. Uh, as you say, as you can see, 7 minutes and 45 seconds, and it's worth every second. Mm-hmm. I think the first question I want to ask is to say, why shouldn't people be sexist? If we have a worldview that tells us the strong eliminate the weak, and if you can dominate people, why not do it? It's actually in the Bible that we see a vision for equality between men and women, both male and female, bearing together the image of God. And um, the story of the Bible really um, plays that out in in amazing ways. So even in the Old Testament, you see a woman like Miriam leading a whole nation in worship. You see a woman like Deborah leading a nation politically and making judgments, making decisions, and even leading her country to war. You see that women didn't require men to be a kind of mediator between them and God. They could pray directly to God. They didn't need a husband or a father to have a relationship with God. Now, sometimes people say, yeah, but come on, in Genesis, all right, um, women, women and men both bear the image of God, but doesn't the Bible call women to help us? Isn't that word in there? The word helper. I don't know what your visual image is when you think of that. When I think of that, I imagine a woman in an apron, hands in the kitchen sink, lots of bubbles, definitely up to the elbows, you know, maybe with a bit of a chain on, stuck in there doing all the housework. Well, actually, the Hebrew word that is translated there, helper, is the word ezer. And it's not a a, a term of domination or or subjugation because God uses that name, Isa, to describe himself in his relationship to us as human beings. God is our Isa, he is our helper. It's a powerful, strong, amazing, not sexist image. And then when we come to the New Testament, we see that Jesus directly resists the sexism that he sees and observes around him. There's a story in John's Gospel in chapter 4 where um, a woman is talking to Jesus and the male disciples come and they see this. They see Jesus one-on-one with a woman and it says they're amazed, they're horrified, they're staggered. What? To see him just talking one-on-one to a woman. Jesus considered women to be worthy of theological instruction. It was a woman called Martha who was the recipient of one of the most amazing doctrinal statements of the New Testament. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live and they will never die. There weren't men around to hear that. Jesus just spoke that to Martha. And then you see this sort of amazing pattern emerge as you read the New Testament where women have this sort of front row seat and extraordinary role of witnessing the core elements of the faith. So it's Mary 
who's the primary witness to the incarnation, the virgin birth. It's the women at the cross who are the primary witnesses to the crucifixion, to the atonement, to the cross of Jesus. The men have all disappeared apart from John. It's only women who are there witnessing the cross. And then, of course, it is women who are first at the resurrection. And then when you read the New Testament, you see in the early church that women like Phoebe led the church in Rome. Women like Junia were considered to be outstanding by Paul among the apostles. So amidst all of that testimony within the Bible, that the Bible isn't sexist, there are three verses which some people have used to say, actually, women should be subjugated. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians that talks about women being silent in church. Now, how do we understand that? Well, I think if you read the whole letter of Corinthians, you see that in the same letter, the same author tells women how to prophesy when they prophesy in church, which men speak publicly. He says, you know, have your hair covered. That meant just modesty in those days. Don't, don't kind of be, you know, showing off your body or your hair while you prophesy. So clearly it didn't mean women should never speak and be silent. It's speaking to a, a specific group of women who were disrupting the services. Another verse talks about men being ahead of women. The Greek word is kephali. And sometimes that's been taken to mean kind of dominance or subjugation. But if you read the verse in context, you see that God is the head of Christ. So if it means hierarchy, that doesn't make sense of, of the Trinity. So whatever that kephali word means in terms of relationship between a man and a woman in a marriage, it doesn't mean domination. In fact, as we read anything about leadership in God's kingdom, we see it's primarily about service, about love, about laying our lives down for one another. And then there's another verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that talks about women not teaching, not being permitted to teach or, or have authority. Now remember, we've already been taught by women like Martha, by women like Mary. We've already seen that women like Priscilla taught. We know that Phoebe taught. She was in authority over the Roman church. So what does that mean? Well, Paul was writing that letter of, of, Timothy to, of, of um, 1 Timothy to the leader of the Ephesian church, Timothy. And the context there was the worship of the goddess Artemis, where women dominated and subjugated men in, the, in that culture. And it seems like that, as those women got converted, had crept into the Ephesian church. So Paul is helping Timothy to correct that specific pastoral situation. And most likely, those women were saying, well, Paul says that everyone has sinned in Adam, that we all sinned in Adam. They weren't Jewish, they didn't even know about Eve, they just heard about this guy Adam who caused the world to sin. And then the second Adam, Jesus, and Paul is saying to Timothy, you know, you need to explain to them that Eve was involved. She actually sinned first. I want to um, just finish this answer quickly by giving you a quote from one of my favourite apologists, a woman called Dorothy L. Sayers, and she wrote this about Jesus. Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never had been such another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronised, who never made arch jokes about them, and never treated us but them as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions 
and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody can possibly guess from the words of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. Is the Bible sexist? I think resoundingly, no. John, cool. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Let's just all watch Amy clips on that. <laughs> you'll, you'll get the link. <laughs> You're not getting that, uh, that easy off the hook, brother. Uh, so, but, but I think what we saw here was, you know, it's obviously a lot of preparation behind such an answer. It, it, it looks very easy at some at one level and another level. We understand it's a lot of. So, how do you prepare just? You know, for, for, for providing those answers? Um, I think with that question in particular, it's, it's something that I'm asked a lot, and the context there was, was really, so it's, a, it's young people who are either calling themselves Christians or who've been brought along by Christians. And so, um, what you're trying to do is to honour scripture and not just say, oh, well, I'm going to say no because I don't want it to be the case and don't worry about it, kids, you know, actually take the question seriously. So to make sure that you do touch on some of the passages that have been used by the church to, um, to dominate. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much more you can say. Obviously, that is actually quite long, seven minutes. Usually, our answers are, are, are shorter. But I think to really do it justice, to give young people a sense of the breadth of how countercultural the Bible still is, but was in its original context. Um, and hopefully, to, to, to get them thinking, wow, I want to read the Bible. This, this sounds, this sounds It's an invitation to, to explore yeah. on, on, on But also own. to yeah. acknowledge the yeah. seriousness of the question. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, for those of us who have done at least some reading in the area, you know, what you did, well, you also showed some misinterpretations of passages yeah. without giving specific, detailed expositions, yeah. which I think there is a lot of wisdom in an area where the church is actually, evangelical church is split. Yeah, exactly. So what I was trying to say is whatever you think, say headship, I mean probably in this room not everyone's not going to agree on what, what we think that, that means, but whatever we think it means, we don't believe it means domination. No, it, this it, is not about yeah, So it's service, it's, yeah. it's love. It, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, so, yeah. Obviously trying to, yeah, trying to do justice to the breadth of how evangelicals interpret scripture, but also give the young people tools to resist um, faulty mm. interpretations. And a lot of, lot of women in youth groups and in university contexts will have experienced very kind of, you know, bludgeoning use of some of those texts. Well, thanks a lot for sharing also behind the scenes kind of uh, because you know it's easy to think 
that this is, comes naturally. You know, with being trained as a public communicator, of course, there is something to that. That, that practice uh, helps, of course. Uh, so so uh, this is obviously a, an issue that has been also people are referring back to, to church and, and, and church history. Uh, John, we're going to move over to, to one of your documentaries, For the Love of God. Uh, and you gave that a subtitle, didn't you? Mm -hmm. So what's the subtitle of that? How the church is better and worse than you ever imagined. How <laughs> <laughs> the church is better and worse than you ever imagined. How did you come up with that title? <laughs> uh, I believe it. <laughs> so that was a good start. Uh, we uh, at the Centre of Public Christianity were working on a documentary on the world religions actually. So this one is our third uh, documentary for Aussie TV. And we were work working on one on the world religions. Uh, we've basically written the script. We're about to run around the world filming it. And um, I was driving back from Canberra one day, the National Capital, with my colleague Simon Smart. And we just felt the more burning question was not the world religions, but the damage that Christianity has done on, yeah, to culture. And of course, there are the famous books uh, by Christopher Hitchens, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. But, but there's a, there was a growing sense, certainly in Australia, and I traveled enough to know that Australia wasn't alone, in thinking that the church is just wicked. Uh, once upon a time, people might have said the problem with Christianity is that it's too moral. Now it's equally common to hear people say the problem with Christianity is that it's immoral. It poisons everything. So we uh, shelved the World Religions documentary and started from scratch four years ago, writing uh, a four-episode documentary uh, shot in 20 countries, about 50 international scholars interviewed, on uh, the best and worst of Christian history from the very beginning uh, through to the modern world, not quite into the you know, recent decades. And um, it was shown in Australian cinemas last year, all around the country. Uh, and then our national broadcaster, the ABC, uh, showed it as well. It was, it was great fun, but also very... Um, If I ever had any triumphalist Christian in me, I don't think I did, but if I did, this project killed it. Mm -hmm. uh, triumphalist Christianity just needs to hang its head in shame. But there's a beautiful tradition also in Christianity mm -hmm. that follows the beautiful tune of Jesus. Uh, and that's an interesting picture, to, to, to be out of tune or to follow the tune. Yeah. And it seems to be you know, a topic that you also talk about on the clip. So let's watch a clip. We'll go to the Damaris website for the... Where we put your resources. Ashamed of it. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. Here we are. I'm actually ashamed of it. I'm ashamed that the name of Christ has ever been associated with a bomb or an AK-47. The history of the West has been mostly Christian, and that history is mixed. 
Here is where the Crusades began. Salvation for taking up the sword. The Crusaders burst through and slaughtered men, women, and children. There are plenty of circumstances for Christians as need for Muslims. Religion is a real good power to march for death. This was where Adolf Hitler proclaimed his vision for the Third Reich. But what was the Christian church doing in response to the unfolding madness? Should Christianity be understood as oppressive for women or as liberating? The Hannah of She Witches was a bestseller for about 200 years. This is one of the most beautiful places in Hawaii. It's also a natural prison. Diseases, land grabs, and outright massacres led to the annihilation of entire communities. To lose the land was a tragedy, even though we aspire to this idea of living in God's image. We often fail, calmly. What does it look like when the church exists for others? There's no denying that Christians have sometimes played completely out of tune, but they've also played it beautifully and with lasting effect. Join us as we travel the globe and back through history to uncover the truth. The church is better and worse than you ever imagined. So, um, Amy, is there something you come across the whole time in questions? Sometimes skepticism comes becomes something inwardly as well. You shared something about yesterday that you know the anxiety mm -hmm. that people feel. Do you also come across that, that Christians are being ashamed of the history of the church? Are they is that also you know something that comes up in the, in the discussions? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it slightly depends on on how we approach these questions, though, because. Um, I mean, I fundamentally believe that as an apologist or, you know, in apologetics, God is not calling us to defend the indefensible. He's not asking us to, to sort of gloss over the sins of the church and hope people don't notice them. Um, and actually being honest, in the way that John and the team were with these questions is so powerful because, um, you know, at the heart of the Christian faith is, the possibility of redemption and forgiveness, but honesty over the depth of sin. So if we can't even do that ourselves about the history of the church, then then And I think in my experience, where we're prepared to do that, doubt actually decreases rather than increases. You know, the, the motivation to pretend everything's fine and you know, trouble trying to, to try and defend some of these things that happened actually increases anxiety and doubt in God's people. 
because we know it's not okay. Um, so yeah, I think I think what the CPX team did, particularly the documentaries, really, really powerful. And I suppose this has to do with transparency, honesty. Yeah, but even behind that, there's a theological perspective that um, acknowledges that Christians are fallen, just as the world is fallen. And so we are not the ones running around thinking we're good through and through and only getting better. That's that kind of secular myth, right? But Christians think that, that we're rotten, that we're, that we're fallen and that we are capable of all sorts of dark things in the church as well as out of the church. And in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, Jesus, the first thing he says in that beautiful sort of rich ethical discourse is blessed to the poor in spirit. Mm -hmm. That is those who acknowledge their bankruptcy. And within a chapter, he's a couple of chapters, he says, don't look at the speck in someone else's eye when there's a great big log in your eye. Um, now this is said to disciples. So I often think that the documentary and a lot of the work that we, we did around it was just um, trying to uh, draw people's attention to the great big log in the Christian eye and um, partly concede and apologize, partly clarify the truth of certain situations and partly to commend. I didn't mean to come up with three C's there, but we are, you know, you're conceding what is wrong. You're clarifying the things that people have got confused. Uh, like we, we do a thing on Northern Ireland and basically no one who knows the Northern Ireland situation thinks it was actually a theological conflict. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of work you need to do to just clarify. That's not one we need to concede. Uh, and then there's all sorts of commending that you can do, the history of charity and hospitals and education for all and so on. Um, commends the Christian faith. And in the end, we ask uh, listeners to ask themselves um, what is truer to the founder? When Christians are raping and pillaging through history, are they following or disobeying Jesus? When they're setting up hospitals for all and you know, showing kindness and so on, are they following or disobeying Christ? And anyone can tell um, that the, the problem with a violent, hateful Christian isn't their Christianity. It's, it's their absence of Christianity. So that's the kind of um, argument we're trying to, to offer. But it begins by acknowledging our own sinfulness as a church. So, when thinking about you know what to focus on in our conversation, we have had to you know to to choose either to go into depth into one area or to cover a number of areas. And we just wanted to cover a number of areas. We could have followed this for the, the rest of our time together. But something you shared yesterday has stayed with me, um, Amy, and that is. Actually, you know, how mental health situation is so, such a burning issue for young people today. Could you just give us, you know, a, a, a little background there, what everyone was here yesterday? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the last 10 years, the studies show, certainly in, in the UK, um, and I looked at the statistics for Zurich last week, too, and, and America. I'm, not sure so much about Norway, but it seems to be a general global trend of a massive increase of anxiety-related and um, suicidal ideation as well for this for the rising generation. And so that is an issue that 
um, we're facing in culture, but it's also an issue we're facing in the church. And so creating a context where young people can ask questions about that, um, including theological questions. What, what does this question even mean? What does it mean that I could be a Christian if I'm struggling with this? Um, so it's something that we're finding all over the world. Our team in the Middle East is experiencing it. Um, in Africa as well, really surprisingly, um, and, and absolutely here in Europe too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we wanted to show a film clip where you are answering a very personal, deeply personal question. You know, the ultimate anxiety question is the suicidal question. Mm -hmm. So is that something you've actually come across a lot recently? Yeah, um, I mean at every youth event I've been present at, that question has not only been asked, it's been voted up to the, to the top of the agenda, so the majority of young people in the room have wanted it to be answered publicly and I would say that is not something I experienced three years ago. So, but it, and it's not isolated, it's been at every event. So it seems like, like it's another kind of scepticism, you know, sceptic about one's own life and the yeah. value and meaning yeah. of one's own life, as yeah. it were. So let's, let's uh, it's again, it's on reboot. And the top question is this, what is your opinion on committing suicide? What does the Bible say about it? Here we go. Thank you. Well, um, that's a really easy question to begin with. Thank you, Casey. Um, and thank you to whoever asked that and to people who voted for it, because um, this is a really live question for, for this generation, and we recognise that. Um, the first thing I'd like to say is that um, God cares about your life. The Bible talks at the beginning of John's Gospel about um, how through Jesus the world was made and then it says in him was life and that life was the light of men. And we talked earlier this morning about how um, human beings are created in the image of God, that there's a, a sacredness and a preciousness about life. And the Christian worldview um, says in contrast with um, atheism or, or naturalism, which which would say um, that, that just human life is just bio, biochemistry, it's just material, it, but life is just stuff of the body. But the Christian worldview says that life is so much more than that. So if you or um, someone that you know closely is, is struggling with this question of ending your life, the first thing I want you to hear is that there is hope and that your life is precious and it really, really matters to God. The second thing I think I would say is that sometimes I think the church has has really gone wrong around this area of, of suicide because in a desire to, to promote life, there's been a kind of condemnation of people who suffer from an illness or who, who suffer from tremendous abuse or distress or depression that leaves them at the point of, of thinking, I'm, I'm just going to end it all. And, and Sam talked about that you know, as a real struggle for, for himself um, just on this stage a few, a few minutes ago. Sometimes you know, people might have experienced that a church wouldn't bury their relative because they died by suicide, that there's a kind of special condemnation reserved for that particular suffering. And 
What I want to say to you today is that that is not in the Bible. The Bible actually describes the suffering world that you and I experience, and it engages with the suffering of people, including people who are struggling with that question of whether they should end their lives. In the Old Testament, we see um, the story told of, of Saul, who did end his life by suicide. Um, it, there was a battle, and he wanted his armor bearer to, to kill him, and he actually wouldn't do it, so, so Saul dies by suicide. So what's the Bible's verdict on him? What does David do in response to this, this awful tragedy of suicide? He mourns, he grieves. Along with Saul's son, Jonathan, they, they lament this distress, this sadness. So um, what I want you to hear is life matters, your life matters, life is sacred and there is hope. If this is a struggle for you, please come and talk to one of us, we'd love to pray with you. Jesus can meet you, but you don't need to end your life. It's really, really important that you hear that, that there is hope. But it's also important that you hear that the Bible doesn't say that suicide is the unforgivable sin. The Bible talks about this issue and talks about it with sadness, with grief, and in the context of lament in the suffering world. Describing the suffering world that we all know and experience and saying God has entered into that suffering world and he meets us in the reality of our pain. And he can do that for you today. So if this is a live question for you today, we'd really love to pray for you. You know, that's the way, you know, it, it, it is past, a very pastoral answer, a very appropriate pastoral answer. And again, that takes a lot of, I would almost say, anointed presence uh, to be there with, with the whole of who you are, doesn't it? Is that the right kind of take on that? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I feel that this question is a bit like holy ground. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 awesome, um, and and we have to to sort of take due care. But other points in that conference as well, we also talked about receiving getting medical help and like the the chemical aspects of depression and how as Christians, you know, we need to access all that sort of help available too. So it's a wider, so it's yeah. a wider picture. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the, the afterwards we we had you know quite a few, quite a lot of feedback from the young people from young people who you know made that decision that they weren't going to end their lives that day. It was a, quite an astonishing day actually, um, and that sense of of not experiencing God's condemnation. Um, but at the same time, wanting to tell people not to do it, you know, it's a, it's an interesting. It's balance. a very delicate yeah. balance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Paul writes, yeah. um, and it's that very. What does it mean to live that out? Yeah. Uh, at the same time, clarifying the, the bad theology there, which yeah. may be so disturbing. Yeah. Um, do, do Do you know anything about the, the statistics or the? Kind of current youth culture in, in, in Australia. Is there anything here yes. that that's it's the same? It's the same. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, suicide is the uh, biggest killer of 15 to 40 year old Australian males. Uh, um, more than car accidents. Yeah, more than car accidents. Mm-hmm. 
so it is a, it is vital, um, and you know, and yet this is a country that prides itself on uh, lifestyle and joy and weather. Um, but uh, there's uh, beaches, beaches, um, and yet you know uh, it doesn't surprise us, but it surprises a lot of Australians that those things do not provide the stability for someone's life. They don't provide resilience, and um, the more the positive psychologists are finding out about contentment and well-being, the clearer it is that pleasure and even flow in your life uh, can only provide temporary sense of well-being. Ultimate well-being is found in meaning. And so, you know, the Martin Seligmans of the world, the Dan Gilberts, you know, the leaders, secular leaders of positive psychology are clear that meaning is the jackpot for contentment. And when a culture has lost meaning, even is cynical of the idea of meaning, combined with all the other factors, that are going on in our world. Um, it isn't surprising that we have this effort. Meaning is the jackpot for contentment. contentment. That's a wonderful one line. Mm -hmm. Oh well, you know, I didn't invent it, but um, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's fascinating. Oh no, I, I won't go into that. I'll just hand it. <laughs> well, okay. I, I was going to say that, um, Aristotle argued that because we are rational animals, the human beings can never be content, can never find eudaimonia, genuine contentment, uh, through physical and emotional pleasure. The only way a rational animal can find contentment is if that animal, if a human, feels it is plugged in to the logos of the universe. Now that's Aristotle working it out simply by logic, but of course that's exactly what Proverbs had said, predating Aristotle by centuries, the early Proverbs, that actually say, when you discover wisdom, you discover God's genius that founded the universe. Mm -hmm. And when you live in wisdom, you find true blessing, true contentment, and so on. And the, the Bible carries that tradition. Yeah. Proverbs 8. Or, yeah. Proverbs 8, I mean, is the great one, because it's a hymn to wisdom. Mm -hmm. And wisdom says, I was there when the Lord laid the foundations of the earth. That wisdom is the very logic of creation, but it is also the revealed instruction of God. The manufacturer has embedded his genius into creation and he's revealed his genius in instructions. And they are the same genius, they have the same wisdom. And so when you live by that wisdom, you are plugged into ultimate reality. I just find it fascinating that what Aristotle found, 4th century BC, Proverbs was already saying for centuries before that, and now the positive psychologists have caught up. <laughs> Finally. Finally, they've caught up. Yeah. And there's a wonderful um, TED talk by Martin Seligman, who is regarded as the sort of the father of positive, positive psychology. Look up his TED talk on the, the, the search for happiness, and it's very clear meaning is the only thing that really provides people with lasting mm. happiness. Have you ever doubted <laughs> what? Me, for example. Oh, I, yes. I, I am a world-class doubter. Yeah, that's clear. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. We got you there. Yeah. <laughs> we sound set up. I'm a world-class. Oh, yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't, at some time, really doubted 
translation of that book, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. published just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And you even got some copy, copies down, down under, didn't you? Yeah, for the Norwegian mm-hmm. translation. Mm-hmm. Yes, wonderful. Well, I don't know what to do with them, but yeah. <laughs> 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 Many Norwegians in Australia are studying now these days, so... Mm-hmm. So, I thought I would leave the, the asking now to John and uh, maybe John would like to ask Amy about something. Mm-hmm. At least uh, that's in the clip. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oops.
questions, was this genuinely eyewitness material or was it kind of made up years later and does it have no reference to the culture at the time? So historically, I think there's a very good argument to be made and for the robustness of the text of the Bible. What was the context for that uh, interview? Amy <laughs> uh, was in town, and uh, <laughs> we had to we had to bottle her up. Uh, in a whole series of interviews, I think we exhausted you that day um, <laughs> for all the days that followed. <laughs> There's a great breach in our friendship uh, over, over how many events you did in Sydney. To be able to mend this night. Yeah, thank you. Um, the context was, uh, well, you know, the Centre for Public Christianity is always trying to interview interesting people who have answers to the Christian faith, um, about the Christian faith. And um, uh, Amy came and did a couple of events for the Centre for Public Christianity. One at our Parliament House in New South Wales, which was um, extremely well attended. And it was, it was very exciting. So uh, go to the CDX website, publicchristianity.org, and you'll find tons of stuff from Amy and uh, many of the others. And you could even go to the Damaris ML slash Dixon. That's a resource page. Uh -huh. Leading on to? Leading on to many different things. OK. okay. <laughs> For the Norwegian context. Right. Um, in terms of, of making documentaries, uh, I know you've also been working on making documentaries on the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here is one. Yeah. Yep. Are we going to show yes. this? Yes. <laughs> Suggesting that his 
self-sacrifice would save people from judgment. Historians take the resurrection story far more seriously than many of us realise. They all agree that something very strange happened that first Easter. I just hope people would give Christianity a chance to put its best case forward. And without a doubt, the best case for Christianity is the life of Jesus. Yes, that was my younger brother. He <laughs> <laughs> oh, looks surprisingly similar. Uh, so, so this was obviously for a specific package of material. Yeah, well, what we did is we actually produced a documentary that showed on Australian television two years in a row on national commercial TV. Um, but what we did is we, we made sort of two products. We made a one-hour documentary that was really just a historical documentary of Jesus' life. And then we built around it an entire course you could do with extra conversations about miracles, about atonement, about the resurrection, and so on, suffering. Um, and that made that available for churches to invite people to investigate the life of Jesus. So um, we, we really hit two things at the one at the one time. And I love what uh, my colleagues, Greg, uh, Greg's uh, final comments in the in the documentary: the best case for Christianity is the life of Jesus. And uh, for me, actually, that sums up my whole approach to what uh, we call apologetics. I just call public Christianity. It is in the end, you want people to encounter Jesus in a gospel. There is nothing more powerful than when a doubter picks up a gospel and reads and is confronted with the person of Jesus. So whatever else uh, we might come up with, all the cool things that we say in apologetics, uh, I think it serves the one purpose of introducing people to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mm. Obviously, this is very close to the heart of, of your ministry, Amy. Uh, uh, have you recently experienced that kind of encounters with, with skeptical people or inquirers that they've, you know, either suddenly or gradually started to explore the life of Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what John said is absolutely right. It's really important in the um, complexity of apologetics and the kind of multiplicity of different questions and different approaches and creative things that we're trying to do that, that ultimately we put a te that text of the gospel into the hand of someone searching and that they have the opportunity to, to encounter Jesus. Yeah, I mean, even um, two, three weeks ago in, in Zurich at that um, festival of thought week, that's exactly what happened. Highly skeptical Swiss bankers um, hearing of the faith, having questions answered. Um, or I can think of one Singaporean that we, we uh, I was in Singapore in May and um, one lady who came to uh, an event I was speaking at, she had showed up in church the previous Sunday as a complete non-Christian, not a churchgoer at all. And someone had recognised her from work and said, oh, um, will you come with me tomorrow at lunchtime and hear this this, this presentation that's going to be happening? And um, she gave her life to Christ on the Monday. And um, 
someone started meeting up and her to read the Bible on the Wednesday. Um, so yes, it's um, it's such joy yeah. to see people. When, when you actually did, this is so encouraging, inspiring to hear what you're sharing, both of you. Uh, and and when you say visiting or having meetings with people in, in a bank context, could you explain us something about our Sims ministry briefly, just to put us into the picture there? What kind of, where are you called to work, among yeah. whom? Yeah, um, so, so one of the things that um, we, as a ministry, we have a focus on four areas of culture that we are hoping to to reach out into um, academia, so universities, um, the political arena, so parliaments and civil services um, around the world. One is business and the other is media and the arts. And so um, in a business context, we might be working with Christians who you know, spend the vast majority of their time at work and trying to help them think about how they can reach out in their company um, so, an example of, and John Lennox went in the week after, and there were sort of five or six Christians who booked the largest meeting space in the bank, invite all their colleagues to come at lunchtime, and then sort of live stream it. And I gave a presentation on is the New Testament myth, um, fiction, or legend, or truth, and then took people's questions. Um, and then John Ellis gave one on science and, and they're then inviting those colleagues to come to a Christmas carol service which will be a more sort of direct proclamation of Jesus and then into inquirers course so that sort of thing or what, what we were doing in Zurich and Singapore was what we call Festival of Thought which is a week of a kind of festival feel in a city that is a centre of, of corporate um, excellence and influence and you'll have multiple companies have hosting lunchtime and evening events um, and, then, and the team kind of speaking at those and answering questions. Mm. Mm. Thank you for sharing. This is very much public Christianity yeah. in, in, a, in another facet as it were yeah. and complementing one another. Well, we're actually moving towards the end of our time together. We wanted to finish with with two different kind of, of reminders, which is more maybe of the pastoral care and nature. Uh, one clip from Amy and another thing from John afterwards, uh, and that is where you are, it's actually a very short clip, but it's a clip about relating to the book of Esther. Uh, could you give us the context just briefly for that clip? Um, so this was um, this was in February of this year, um, and it's a, a women's conference in Scotland, and it's the um, convention centre in Edinburgh, and they gather Christian women from all over the nation once every two years, and they asked me to give the the Bible expositions from the Book of Esther. So I gave three in the mornings. And the Book of Esther is some ways not the most ordinary no. book in the Bible, is it? No, it's, I'd actually never really talked from it before, so it was, so what, it was a pretty tall order. So yeah. what is this, I mean, the, the unique kind of characters there? Well, I mean, features. One, one feature is that God's name, the word God, is not mentioned in the entire book, so um, it's, it's, it's quite interesting scripture. You've got all kinds of moral dilemmas. You've got human trafficking, effectively, 
Josephus says over 400 women trafficked from between Iran and um, Ethiopia, a massive area of women trafficked into a harem, and Esther was one of them. It's not the idealised <laughs> Esther, the princess, lucky her, became queen. It's, it's actually pretty horrific. And then at the end of the book as well, you see this sort of massacre. So all kinds of moral dilemmas. Where is God in the, in the nitty-gritty of, of a materialistic empire? Horrific moral dilemmas. How could it be that God is at work? And is he at work? And then the book is also a satire. There's humour in there. Um, so, yeah. Mm. Well, that gives us a background, I think, for, for understanding, uh, you know, and, and you applying to our situation mm. today that we might not even see God, yeah. uh, but God is there. Yeah. What is about God's presence? Oops. <laughs> Just a moment. I think Facebook is kind of taking over here a little bit. Just a moment. Here we are. Facebook is very useful. Yes, yeah, it is. Very but irritating sometimes. Yeah. Let's do this one away. And we have this new one. You're coming up here. Here we are. Thank you, Bjork. Candles. Or we might look at medical ethical issues like abortion or euthanasia. Or we might look at mundane events in our own. Yeah. To get the whole clipping. Yeah. Okay. We might not be able to see God at work. We might look at political decisions in our nation's capitals. Or we might look at medical ethical issues like abortion or euthanasia. Or we might look at mundane events in our own lives or the teenage parties that our kids are invited to or the crazy hen weekend we really do not want to go on. And the message of Esther is that we must not conclude that God is not at work in those places. This real world of rampant materialism, of drunkenness, of objectification of people, of appearance obsession, is here in the Bible. And it is into this reality that God moves. It's all here. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> In order to somewhat uh, match that or complement that or supplement that, John, uh, your, your uh, salt, unseen hands. What? Right. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's actually on John's uh, website under music. So let's actually hear that song for three minutes and eight seconds.
You said it was a deeply personal song. Uh, yeah, that my mum, who um, lost her both her parents before she was fourteen, and then lost her husband, uh, my dad, uh, twelve years into their marriage mm-hmm. in a plane crash. And so, uh, just a lot of you know hardness there. She's been very anti-Christianity. When I became a Christian at sixteen, she was very bitter about it all, and and you know. So I, I wrote this song uh, that's uh, just saying, even though you never believed it, you never saw it, I do believe unseen hands have held you through uh, sort of remarkable sorrow and sorrow. Uh, now my mum uh, is still not saying she's a Christian, but she's uh, attending a good evangelical church every week. She's reading the Bible and uh, asks me to pray for her uh, regularly. So. She's, she's on the way, yeah, those unseen hands. That's amazing. It is amazing. Thank you. Thank you, but before that, Annie would like to pray with us? Yeah. Father, we thank you for that truth, if you're unseen hands in our lives. Thank you for John's mum, thank you that you know her, you love her, and we trust that you will fully bring her home to you. And Lord, I pray for each one of us in this room as we're hearing that and reflecting on it and perhaps thinking about people who are close to us who don't know you, Lord, I pray that in this year you would draw our loved ones to you, that your hands would be at work drawing people to you. And as we've talked about and thought about um, communication and and how we communicate your gospel in this world, Lord, we, we offer ourselves to you and ask you to help us make your name known in our generation. We pray that you would give us the creativity, you would give us greater sensitivity, and you would uh, increase our effectiveness in this world for the sake of the Lord Jesus, that people might be pointed to the Lord Jesus, that many, many people in this nation and in the networks we represent might come to know the Lord Jesus. Keep us humble, Lord, keep us focused on you, Help us to admit quickly when when we've made mistakes, when we've got things wrong. And strengthen us by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Three things left to say. First of all, a big thank you to our two guests here. And as a symbolic thing, I like the right person. Uh, a colleague of ours, and two colleagues of ours, has written a book called The Four Speeches Every Leader Has to Know, which is actually about how do you, you know, present your vision in a welcome speech, if there are tough decisions in an executioner speech, if there are a uh, need for consolation, and if there is a need to leave a legacy. It's a fascinating book analyzing different speeches, and since you're both public communicators, and leaders, this was uh, 
nice symbolic gift. One yeah. foot. Mm -hmm. uh, and so let me hand over to you. All right. Yes, thank you. Thank you.